Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today and even more grateful that you're a part of our community. Before we get into today's teaching, just wanted to keep a couple things in front of you that's going on in the life of our community. The first is that it's Black History Month, and at South Bend City Church, one of our mantras is everyone an icon. That humanity bears the image of God and this assertion of profound dignity is our starting point with every single person that we meet. In order to honor the stories around us here in South Bend during Black History Month, we want to be students of the history of our city by engaging with a couple of valuable local resources. The first is a book called Better Homes of South Bend by Gabrielle Robinson. It's an American story of courage from the 1950s in which African-American Studebaker workers from the South won out over Jim Crow in the North to build 22 homes in a white neighborhood and to create a legacy here in South Bend. Our learning will continue with the African-American landmark self-guided tour here in South Bend, visiting some of the sites where history was made, from schools to churches to neighborhoods and sites of political and social gathering. This was developed by the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center, and it's available virtually. You can find those two learning opportunities in the show notes below. Or if you want further resources, you can also revisit the resources for a church that wants to fight for black lives. A packet of resources which was curated by the members and leaders of the South Bend City Church community. The second thing we wanted to keep in front of you is that Wednesday, February 22nd, we'll gather from 7 to 7.45 for Ash Wednesday. This practice marks the beginning of Lent, a time of reflection and preparation as we move towards Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. For those who wish to participate in person, we'll meet at Studebaker 112 and we'll receive a sign of the cross in ash on our foreheads as a reminder of our mortality and an invitation into the holiness of the Lent season. If you're coming in person, kids are more than welcome, but there will be no child care provided. This gathering will also be recorded and posted for our digital long-distance community members on that day as well. All right, this is our final week in our money series, and we're talking about the ways which we have become disempowered in our relationship with it, and ways to reclaim our creativity and power. Let's join the rest of our community now. Man, it's hard for me to imagine a more beautiful way to get started this morning, right? You want to say thanks to Zach and Mariah and the team for leading us? Yeah. I thought that was really beautiful, really thankful. Uh, I also have thankfulness uh, for Angela Logan, who taught us last week. Yeah, right? Angela was here at the 9 to receive some love. She's not here now, but she knows that you love her. Um, if you weren't here last week and you didn't catch it on the podcast, Angela was talking to us a little bit more about money and generosity, and I was really thankful for a bunch of reasons. Um, Angela, in her talk, she did allude to the fact that sometimes here at South Bend City Church, we're a little shy about that conversation, mostly because I think we have so much awareness of all the baggage that people feel around church and money, and sometimes we know more about what we don't want to be on that front than what we do want to be on that front, but we are working on it. I had this experience a couple of years ago that really crystallized for me, though, what it feels like when we don't get it right, and it, it stuck with me. Uh, I was in New York City with a buddy of mine. We were hanging out with some friends, and we're walking uh, through Manhattan in, in, in the crush of all the people there on the sidewalks, and maybe like a block away, I see this guy and he, his appearance strikes me immediately from a distance because he looks just like somebody who is very special to me. 
And the person he reminded me of, I'd lost touch with, but I had had this very intense encounter with this person a few years prior. It, it marked me really deeply. So when I saw this person on the street who reminded me of this other friend of mine, I was like drawn toward them. And there's a very particular reason that I was seeing this guy and drawn toward him. The person I'm talking about was a Theravada Buddhist monk from Bangladesh named Taijay. And Taijay and I were in Sri Lanka together, working with a group of young leaders from around the world who had gathered. And our mission was to help these young leaders in their work. And the thing they had in common, whether they were from Afghanistan or El Salvador or Sri Lanka or Kenya, was that they were trying to help other young people in their countries create better futures in their countries. And these are places that were particularly uh, torn apart by overt and violent conflict often. And so we were there in the kind of spiritual capacity as shepherds and chaplains. And it was a privilege of mine to work with Taijay. I didn't know a lot about Theravada Buddhism, which is one of the streams of Buddhism. I didn't know a lot about his life as a monk. But what I immediately encountered in him was this sort of bright, delightful, present kindness that just marked me from the minute that I met him and we began to work together. The experience that we had there in Sri Lanka was very intense because the young leaders that we were serving were coming into that experience with really intense backgrounds. Uh, often they were carrying very serious trauma and there were very serious threats against them and the work that they were doing. And we had the sacred privilege of trying to steward a space for them for a brief moment in time. And so we kind of felt the burden of that together and we worked through it together. Now, if you don't know anything about a, a Theravada Buddhist monk, uh, Theravada Buddhism is the minority stream in Buddhism. It's sort of the early stream of Buddhism. When you encounter Buddhism in the West, you're usually encountering Mahayana Buddhism, which is the other big stream. So to run into a Theravada Buddhist is kind of like running into a Protestant at Notre Dame. Just like a very rare species in the wild, right? And so I was excited. And the reason I knew he was a Theravada Buddhist monk is that Theravada Buddhist monks wear a very particular garment. It's um, a sort of wrapped cloth around them that's been dyed with saffron. If you know the, the spice saffron, it kind of creates a golden color when it's used as a dye or when you have it in food. And so I see this, this gentleman who, like his, his skin, his garment, everything about him looks like my Bangladeshi friend Taijay. And I was remembering the experience that I had had with Taijay when I'm walking through Manhattan. And so I, I find myself kind of drawn toward him because he's just standing there on the street. And we make eye contact. And through that eye contact, I sense that he's sort of welcoming me to come toward him and to encounter him. And so I walk up to this monk. And he doesn't really speak a lot of English. So we're just kind of having this awkward good feelings encounter, right, where I'm trying to communicate purely through eye contact and body language that I have a friend. Like, do you know him from Bangladesh? Which is stupid, right? That's like idiotic. <laughs> But I'm thinking of Taijay and, and, and thankful for the fact that you could be like anywhere in the world and kind of randomly stumble into an encounter like this where you feel goodwill and joy. And then after some eye contact and some sort of awkward connection, he takes this off his wrist and he gives it to me. And if you can't see it, this is a sort of a beaded bracelet. And what you don't know about me is that this time in my life, a couple of years ago, I was specifically in a period in my own practice of prayer where I was really curious about the way that many traditions use physical objects as aids in prayer. Now, I'm not talking about like some kind of magical properties or anything. I just mean that whether it's my Catholic brothers and sisters and their rosary beads or my Orthodox brothers and sisters and their prayer ropes or my Buddhist friends and their, uh, their meditation beads, I was realizing that often wise people over the centuries have realized that it helps for the body to have something to do while you pray. It just can be very useful to kind of center yourself 
And so when he placed these beads on my wrist, I was like, you have no idea. I've literally been sort of exploring things like this as a way to help me pray. And so I'm just like feeling exalted in the experience of divine connection with this representative of my, my friend Taija from Sri Lanka and feeling all wrapped up in it. And I kind of want to wrap up the conversation. And so I, I try to say thank you again and kind of bow toward him. And as I walk away, he grabs my wrist. And then he shows me a clipboard where there's dollar amounts listed. And I realized, oh, this wasn't a freebie. <laughs> so I pull out my wallet, and I try to give him a couple of bucks. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, sure, that's fair. You know, I appreciate that. He rejects the couple of dollars and sees the 20 in my wallet and tries to take it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm not paying you $20 for this thing. And I'm starting to feel like a really dumb tourist rather than a spiritual pilgrim on a journey of humanity in the streets of Manhattan, right? <laughs> but I realize he's not going to let me keep the bracelet if I don't give him the 20. So I give him the 20, and I walk away. And I feel everything you're feeling inside right now, <laughs> which is like my heart had opened to this beautiful encounter with a man dressed in the garment of professional religion who placed a piece of prayer tool on my wrist only to say, give me the money. <laughs> and I realized in that moment, that's one of the more like crystallized experiences that a lot of you have had in religious spaces. And I tried to mark it in my memory because while I see the abuses and I understand the sort of manipulation that we're all frustrated with when it comes to religion and money. It's also true that I've been on the payroll of a church every day of my life since I was 18 years old. It's my entire adult life. I've also been on the side of things where I know I literally can't pay my rent if people don't give. So in this moment, where I think I felt what a lot of you have felt, where I had no connection to his religious tradition and I wasn't inside his house of worship, but I was there sort of thinking I was just on the receiving end of this beautiful sort of generous spiritual gift only to find out it was attached to a transactional expectation. Like I marked that experience because I don't want to forget what it felt like. And the, the awareness that that's often how this goes is one of the reasons that we've been so reticent uh, around here about talking about money. But we've also tried to say in the last couple of years, we've tried to own the fact that we've done a disservice. Because even though there are some landmines, some tensions in the field of church and religion and money, it's also a really important uh, fertile ground for growth and faith, right? Angela talked last week about time, and talent, and treasure, and testimony. And all of those are, are channels that we sort of bring to our life together, right? And it's actually true. Beyond, beyond the practical fact that this thing we're doing right now doesn't work without resources, beyond that practical fact, there's also the deeper truth, which is that to be a church is to come together with those things and to sort of bring those to our life of faith together. That's actually part of how this works, right? And so we're going to keep awkwardly trying to figure out our way to tell one another the truth about money and faith and church and we're going to try to avoid some of the landmines. But we need to find ways to do it. And that's why I'm super thankful uh, for somebody like Angela who's not actually on the payroll, which maybe lends a certain kind of credibility to her voice when she says those things. Uh, so that's my long way of saying thanks to Angela and also, when we talk about money, if it seems awkward, there are reasons for that, right? Um, Angela, in her talk, she also invoked something, and I want to kind of take this and run with it today. She talked in, in generosity about how, how to be generous with your money, is to be like God. Simply put, to, to bear the image of God in the world includes generosity. That every inch of the universe reflects the generosity of God, that God has given all of this so that it can exist and that God sustains all of this every day. When we talk about Imago Dei, which is the image of God, or when we say everyone an icon, which is one of our mantras, which is a reminder that you 
and me and every human being you meet are bearers of the image of God. When we talk about that, the baseline is that there's a dignity to you that cannot be taken away. And I want to say that really loud as we get into today's stuff because money can be one of the places where you may not feel a lot of dignity. You may not be holding your head high. But like anything we say about money or finances, I hope you hear this first, that we're not saying that you have anything to prove. We're not saying that whether your bank accounts are overflowing or whether they have a negative balance, that that somehow is a verdict on whether you have worth in the world. The, the baseline of everyone in Icon is that regardless of what's going on in any part of your life, you are a bearer of the divine image that cannot be taken from you. It cannot be diminished or destroyed. And the image of God is also a calling. It simultaneously tells the truth about you and me, and it calls the truth out of you and me. So there's a baseline which says that there's, there's nothing about our behavior or our way of being in the world that can diminish the fact that you are a sacred bearer of God's image. But our way of being in the world may or may not live up to that image, right? And when Angela mentions uh, to be generous is to be like God, it's a way of saying that, that we have been endowed with a certain kind of power in the world, right? Like, just like God, we are able to get our hands in the materials of our lives and the world around us, and we're able to fashion something of it. In Genesis 1, where we, where we read that we are bearers of the divine image, in, in verses 26 and 27, where that comes from, at that point, if you said, okay, humanity is meant to look like God, and then you say, well, what do we know about God at this point in the story? Well, you're only 26 verses into the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. At that point, the one thing you know about God is that God is endlessly creative, that God gets God's hands on the raw materials, that he sifts and sorts and orders that raw material into something beautiful and life-giving, which is why at the beginning you just have this sort of formless void of things, and by the end of that chapter you have the entire world sifted and sorted into environments of life and flourishing. And then after we read that about God, we read that we are made in that image, which suggests that we are meant to get our hands on the raw materials of this world and sift it and sort it and make beautiful things, and our money might just be a part of that. Uh, Zach mentioned that this Black History Month, we are doing some proactive learning together as a community. And one of the resources that we're pointing toward that I hope everyone will read is this book called Better Homes of South Bend. Uh, it's such an important book to read, especially for South Bend City Church, because it's not just about black history. It's not just about black history in the U.S. It's not just about black history in the city of South Bend. It's about black history among Studebaker employees. And by the way, you're sitting in the room where some of them worked. And this is the story of a group of black South Bend residents who came together to secure better housing for themselves when discriminatory housing practices had them relegated to awful housing. So it's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. It also informs our understanding of the city that we live in right now and the kind of inequalities that still shape it, not just in 1950, but today. And I was reading it, and I was struck right out of the gate. In the very first chapter, this little detail popped out to me, and it tells a big story in this little detail. So the, the book begins in the first meeting ever of these black leaders, these families who are going to conspire together subversively to create a better future for black Americans right here in South Bend. And in, in, in this first meeting where they're kind of putting their plans together and conspiring, there's this little detail that pops out. Uh, at the end of the meeting, Allen, this is Jay Chester Allen, an attorney who was part of the group, asked each person to pay at least $1 to be placed in the treasury for miscellaneous expenses, and that at every meeting, further donations should be collected. Now, $1 in 1950, by the way, it's not a lot more today. It's $12 in current dollars. 
but right there at the beginning of all of their grand conspiring to do something beautiful, courageous, and redemptive. This, this, whole, this whole book is a story about like, people bearing the image of God in a city that was sort of built against that in them. Right? In that story right out of the gate, like, the money is a part of it. The money sort of follows their vision for what they want to create. And in that moment, I wondered if that felt empowering to them. I mean, these people getting together in 1950 to resist very um, built-up structures and systems that discriminated against them in housing, they're getting together to do something brave knowing the system's against them. And I wonder if it felt empowering for them to do something tangible, to put their dollar into that fund, knowing that like, their, their finances were following their convictions about what it was that they wanted it to create. Uh, I think a lot of us today are not feeling empowered financially. Um, there's some big stuff going on. Economic inequality is skyrocketing. That's a very serious problem. I don't have any idea what to do about it. But it's clearly a problem. Like, there's a lot of historical witness that says that when economic inequality grows the way that it's growing right now, bad things happen. It's just not good. Um, by the way, Scripture has a lot to say about that kind of inequality. Um, speaking of that, uh, some of us are facing real financial poverty, and the scripture is really clear. Poverty is an indictment of the system that created it, not necessarily the people living in it. I mean, just, just read the Bible cover to cover, get honest about it. The Bible is very clear. Poverty is an indictment of the system that created it. And so that's really important to lay out here at the beginning, because what I'm about to talk about is personal choice, your own power, your own agency. But I don't want to talk about that as if there aren't some big systemic things going on. It's just that, like I said a few weeks ago, in any given sermon, we don't really have time to talk about everything. And for a few weeks, we wanted to dial in on the kind of personal experience that we're having when it comes to money. I can say all that stuff about uh, the system, and it's true. And some of you have frankly just been dealt a bad hand, and others have been dealt, have been dealt a better hand. But that being said, like, there are all these, all these all kind of patterns and teachings in Scripture that I don't want us to not hear just because we name that other truth. So, for example, the book of Proverbs, it's an interesting book to read. You look for patterns in Proverbs. It has all these kind of pithy, concrete little sayings, but they paint a larger story of understanding about how to be human and how to live well. And see if you notice in these, for example, these four Proverbs, a sort of theme or thread that stands out. So here in Proverbs chapter 21, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Or how about this? The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. By the way, food and olive oil, that's not just, you know, so you can, like, make a great gourmet dinner party this week, right? That's at a time of subsistence living where those are basic staples that provide for life, right? How about this? The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Or here from Proverbs uh, 15. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Now, I'm going to say this again so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Just because the proverb says that in the house of the righteous there is much treasure, that doesn't mean that the people with all the treasure are the most righteous. Just because it says trouble befalls the income of the wicked, that doesn't mean if trouble has befallen your income that you are wicked. Okay? You, can't, you can't reverse engineer these teachings like that. That's not what they're saying. But there is a thread there, right? There's, there's a thread that says something like you live your life, you walk on a path, and you have choices to make about the future that you provide for yourself. That you can be the kind of person who just kind of, like, you feel like things are just happening to you, or you can be the kind of person who happens to things. That in your finances and in other areas, you can either be a victim of your own short-sightedness, or we can exercise some agency 
some of our power. We can bring our intentionality. We can bring our capacities, these God-given capacities to plan and think about the future and channel our values into our decisions. We can bring those things to our money or not. We can steward our resources or not. And every day there's these little forks in the road about which kind of person we're going to be as Proverbs lays out the path of the righteous and the wise and the other path that reaps destruction for us and others. It's pretty clear that though we live in the richest country in the world, um, a lot of us are struggling with this. 63% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Now, some of those Americans are at the bottom of the income distribution in ways that reflect injustices and inequities. But a lot of those Americans are making good money, and we're just not being wise about it, right? 56% of Americans can't cover a $1,000 emergency if it pops up right now. So whether that's the car breaking down or a family emergency that means you need to hop on a flight but you can't pay for the ticket, that's more than half of us can't cover that emergency right now. By the way, interesting little generational breakdown. The, um, the generation that is the worst on that stat is not Gen Z and not Gen X and it's not boomers. It's the millennials. <laughs> Some of that might be because millennials are often in the kind of most intense season of like raising families, and that can be really expensive, and that's hard, so I get that. But um, everything I just said, that's not meant to shame us or make you hang your head. It's just a reality check, right? This isn't about your dignity. This isn't about my dignity, even though I've had plenty of my financial struggles. This is just a reality check. I'm like, is this working for us? I don't think this is working for us. For, for far too many of us, we aren't channeling our power, our creativity, our agency through our money. Our money is a place where we keep giving up our power, where we keep sort of making unthoughtful choices that leave, leave us disempowered and, and, and then wondering why we don't feel our own dignity when it comes to what's happening with our pocketbook. Now, um, I keep making this disclaimer. This is the last time I'm going to do it, I promise. But some of you have had things happen to you that really are, you're just up against it, and you didn't choose it. And I want to say really loud and clear, like, I hope you know about our care fund. Because we know that, and I'm not just going to say it from the stage, we give toward that. If you have margin, you can give to the care fund. You can go to southlandcitychurch.com slash give, choose the care fund. All of that money goes toward material needs in our church. And if you have need, please let us know. Uh, in the past couple of years, that care fund has paid for people who can't make rent. It's dealt with a broken down car. It's, uh, I could go on and on, although some of the circumstances that that money has shown up for, I don't want to name because I don't want to call anybody out. But like, there's like really beautiful ways that that money is helping. Our care fund isn't set up to deal with chronic needs, but it's, it's really set up to deal with crisis moments. And we've got a kind of um, framework that our team uses to make sure that we apply that money consistently for anybody in our community. So it's not like we're just deciding on a whim where that money goes. But really, reach out to us because we know that sometimes life does happen to you. And sometimes you have been disempowered by the circumstances around you. And when that happens, we want to help you with some of our material resources as a church. Um, the other thing, though, about all of this like money stuff is that we, we are all living in a contested environment when it comes to financial stewardship in a way that we haven't in previous generations. Let me see if I can make my case for this. Because what, what I'm trying to say is if you're frustrated with your money situation, if you keep getting to the end of the month running out of money and wondering like why it's not all working, if you keep wondering why you feel disempowered when it comes to your spending habits, I, I actually think human beings are living in a more complicated time when it comes to money than ever before. And I'm going to make the case through one specific point. But before I talk about money, let me pivot to a metaphor. So let's talk, forget about money for a minute. Let's talk about social media. Raise your hand if you have ever spent more time than you intended on social media. 
And if you're not raising your hand, we don't believe you, right? <laughs> sometimes it's a few extra minutes. Sometimes it's hours. I know I, I so I no longer, Twitter was the one that was the worst for me. I actually realized years ago one day, I was walking from my kitchen, I was meaning to go upstairs to my bedroom, and on the walk from the kitchen to the stairs, I happened to open my phone and open Twitter, and I realized I had sat down in the Lazy Boy chair, and I had spent four hours on Twitter. Don't, no, come on, don't. <laughs> I will call you out if you're gonna call me out on that. This was a more extreme example, but it happens to us. And I'll be honest, my first thought was like, man, what an idiot. Why would I do that? I felt disempowered. I felt frustrated. And then I remember what we are learning about social media, which is you are in an uphill battle against systems, technologies, computer programming, design of things they know about your brain. You are up against an arsenal of, of addictive program design that is doing everything it can to give your brain the kind of rewards that it needs to keep your attention. So if you have like spent more time on social media than you meant to, it's not because you're a bad person, it's because our species is being confronted with a greater challenge toward our intentions than we've ever faced before, okay? So like don't feel bad about that, just recognize you're up against it. Same goes for spending and consumerism. And here's what I mean by that specifically. Up until the invention of internet cookies, Marketing and advertising were metaphorically something like old-school artillery. So old-school artillery on the field, they dial in where they hope the weapon will land, they set it off, and if the thing they were trying to hit has moved, ain't going to hit it, right? Up until the invention of internet cookies, that's sort of like marketing, right? Yeah, they blast out messages and images and commercials and things that are meant to make you want the thing that they're promoting, right? But it's kind of a scattershot and they hope it hits you, right? Then the internet cookie comes along. The internet cookie follows you around everywhere you go on the internet, keeps track of everything you look at, everything that you linger on, builds a profile about you and your desires that's more sophisticated than the one that you have on yourself, and then uses that to interrupt your life with targeted ads that are something like heat-seeking guided missiles fired from a drone that follows you 24-7, right? That's the new metaphor for advertising in the world of internet cookies. This is why you're, you know, you're a responsible citizen, so you're there on some well-known, highly reputable journalism website trying to learn about the hard things that are happening in the world so that you can be mindful as a global citizen. And then that ad pops up for that shirt that you never knew that you wanted, but somehow the internet gods just knew that that's exactly what's going to make you look good at the presentation tomorrow at work, so you click that thing, Right? You're scrolling on Instagram, and you're just there to catch up on the lives of your friends and the cute pictures of their kids, and that little promoted ad pops up, and you don't even see the word promoted. You're just kind of like, oh, what is this thing that's just perfectly designed for my taste? Yeah, we are living in an environment that's really, really good, really, really good, in a way that it has never been before, at inducing us toward compulsive purchases that we don't even think about. I say that to hopefully like lift the burden a little bit on you. Like, yeah, if, if it's harder than ever, you're not crazy. We are living in an environment that is engineered in highly sophisticated ways to get you to not think about what you spent. Really good at it. So don't hang your head, but we better up our game, is all I'm saying. If it's true that money, just like time, just like talent, just like testimony, the other things that Angela talked about, if it's true that money is a place where we can channel our power and express the, the divine life in and through us in the world. If it's a place where we can bring our creativity and our agency to live our, our best version of ourselves in the world, if money is a place where we can do that, 
But if we keep finding ourselves like disempowered in that situation and spending more than we mean to and living paycheck to paycheck, then it's time to up our game to bring in like new tools of intentionality, right? And this is the part where the sermon might get really disappointing because all of that was a ramp up to the profound rocket scientist life-changing insight that we should have budgets. <laughs> That's it. I think we should have budgets. This is my encouragement. This is my practical on-the-ground encouragement for all of us to get real about a budget. Now, I know some in the room are like, yeah, no duh, bro, thanks. So glad I came to church today. At least the music was good, right? <laughs> Others are rolling your eyes because you were expecting something that feels more enlightened. But I'm telling you, um, I said it a couple years ago when I preached about money. Paul's letters, these places where Paul says some of the most transformative things that have ever been written in human history. Things like there is no, um, nothing on life or on heaven or earth that can separate us from the love of God. Paul, who says that in Christ, a miracle has happened in which there is no Jew or Gentile, nor slave, nor free, but all of humanity belong to each other. That's those same letters are fundraising letters. <laughs> because all the big transcendent spiritual stuff has to live in the practical and the concrete. That's like real faith in the real world. And a budget is one of the ways where that can happen. So if you'll permit me, I want to give a, a sort of multi-step challenge for all of us when it comes to budgets. For those of you in the room who are all over the budget game, just be happy that this good news is being shared with others, right? And for the other 98% of us, here's the challenge. A budget in three steps. One, do the audit. What I mean by that is actually go through the last 30 days on all your accounts. Open up your checking account go through your credit cards, anywhere in your life that money comes in or out, do an actual line-by-line -line audit. It will not take as long as you think, and it will blow your mind. I'm, I'm betting almost all of us will find some surprises if we actually do the audit, if you haven't done this in a while. Things just creep in, right? Like you don't even invite them into your spending. They just kind of creep in little by little. Here's an example. Have you all heard of Netflix? So here's the thing. When Netflix first offered itself as a streaming subscription, it was $8 a month. So here comes Netflix. It's like Netflix shows up at your dinner party, right? And you didn't even invite Netflix, but Netflix is like, yeah, but I offer unlimited entertainment for all of you. I'm like, well, that's cool. How much does it cost? And Netflix is like, eight bucks. You won't even notice. I'm just going to stand over here in the corner and provide this great gift to you and your friends of limitless entertainment. And so you're like, cool, eight bucks. I won't even notice that. That's like half a Starbucks drink these days. So, so you or like one carton of eggs or something like that, you know? So you're like, cool, eight bucks, not even a big deal. And then once they're in the door and Netflix does this, $9. $12, $17, $19.99, that's more than twice the price. That's the current package for all of Netflix right now, right? I mean, this blows my mind. Then there's that day when your friend tells you about only murders in the building. And you're like, oh my goodness, I've been waiting for a show with Steve Martin and Martin Short. Who hasn't, right? Saluda Gomez, what? So right there, Friday night, sitting on the couch, you got a Hulu subscription without even thinking about it, because who cares about another 12 bucks a month? But before you know it, you're dropping like 80 bucks in streaming services when you were so proud of yourself for cutting the cable, right? apps. I mean, this is serious. Like, I, I discovered on my iPhone, I can't speak to Android because I'm a good person, but on iPhones, <laughs> I'm kidding, but I, I don't know why iPhone Android jokes still work, but they do, right? <laughs> anyway, I know on iPhones, you can actually click through and find the place where you discover everything that you are paying weekly, monthly, or annually for apps on your phone, 
And I'm betting some of us don't even realize it, right? Because the apps do the exact same thing. They show up and they're like, I'm free. All these coders in SF, they just decided to gift the world this app. They've been working for a decade on this product, and they're just going to give it to you out of the generosity of their heart. And so you add the app to your phone, and then you get into the game or the product that it offers, and then halfway through your experience, it's like, oh, you like that? Would you like more of that? Would you like that without these cumbersome ads? Just pay a little bit, and then you're not thinking about it, and you add it, and then you open up that page in your phone, and if you're like me, you realize you're paying like for seven apps a month that you weren't even thinking about, and you haven't used it a year, right? Some of you have like a circumstantial change that has affected your finances, but you haven't audited it. So you built your budget years ago when it was normal practice for you to make dinner at home for the family every night. Cool, that can be a very frugal thing to do, right? To like make dinner every night. But then one by one, the kids all joined those sports teams. So now you've gone from being able to make dinner at home and save some money that way to having to buy dinner out or carry out like every night of the week and that's how you're making life work and there's nothing wrong with that. But you haven't like recalibrated and you haven't audited in a long time what that's doing to your money and all of a sudden you're not happening to your money, your life is happening to you. And your money is paying the price, right? So that's the first encouragement, do an actual audit. Like, don't skip this, do an actual audit. It, this is just an encounter with reality. Every account in your life where money comes in or out, look at it for the last month, take note of it, add everything up, see where everything's going. Then, it's time for some hard decisions. And the hard decisions come from two questions, I think. The first question is, is this doable? L literally, is this doable? Some of us are like, man, why do I keep running out of money at the end of the month? Because you literally have already spoken for more dollars than you bring in every month, right? I mean, that's, that has been me in a couple of seasons. I've had a couple of seasons where I'm like, why can I not make the money work? And I finally do the audit, and it's like, oh, no, I literally have planned on spending more than I'm bringing in every month, right? But you didn't name it until you saw it. So the first question is, is this doable? And the second question is, is this good? When I look at the way the money's coming in and the way the money's going out, is this good? Is, is this what I believe about how I want to use this power that I have in the world? The power to kind of channel these things? Is it, you know, is every dollar in my budget just being spent on me? Uh, what values are expressed in the way that the money's coming in and going out, right? Uh, so the, after the audit, you ask these two questions. Is this doable and is this good? Then it might be time for some hard decisions. Uh, man, I can't describe how many times I've seen this in my own life and my friends' lives where um, what feels brutal in terms of a financial decision, like maybe we should sell the big square footage house because we don't need it anymore. How, can't imagine life without this house, but why are you paying for it, you know? And then you get on the other side of it and there's like a liberation and a freedom and a lightness just waiting for you that you had no idea you were missing, right? Uh, I've seen that, um, it's like the friend with the, you know, the really expensive car lease. And at the time, it seemed like the right decision, but you're like, man, that's a lot of money going out every month. And now that I know what it feels like to see all that money go out every month, and it's either not doable or it's not good, maybe it's time to like trade that thing in and buy something used. And it feels like you can't imagine. It feels like a death inside. Yeah, totally. And if there's one thing our faith says, it's that there's new life after death, right? It's like, yeah, there's something liberating and powerful waiting for you on the other side of that hard decision. So do the audit, ask yourself, is it doable and is it good? make some hard decisions, and then it's time to plan. And this is where things get exciting. I hope this is where you can feel a little bit of that creative power that God has given you, your agency in the world. This is where you can say, 
What is it like to be, you know, a little representative of God in the world, to steward the raw materials that I have my hands on for good, right? To do interesting things. Now, it's, by the way, I think it's great to provide for yourself. I don't think you should feel bad about providing for yourself. And to be able to provide for yourself, that's an empowering feeling, right? So that can be a good thing. But also to be able to channel that in other interesting, creative ways. Um, do some planning and see if you might want to design a budget that reflects your values, not just your impulses. That reflects the way that you want to happen to your money, not just the way that money keeps happening to you. Um, this is where I think things go from disempowering to joyful. Uh, let me tell you a story from uh, years ago in my life that I, I wasn't sure if I would tell it because honestly it's just embarrassing, but then I thought I should probably tell it. Uh, years ago I was um, uh, living on a pastor's salary. I wasn't sure if you were aware of that. Um, and, um, and I was paying my way through grad school at Notre Dame, which is not cheap. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and I was really committed to not taking out more debt for grad school, and so I was proud of that fact. But I'm also just like, I don't know if you know this about me, I'm not like wired for budgets. Like some of you, like you just, like a night with spreadsheets for you is like a night at a concert for me. I don't understand you, but I'm glad you exist, you know what I mean? <laughs> I remember years ago when I worked at this larger church in the area and I was responsible for a very large budget and uh, I brought a lot of help on that. I actually made the finance team meet with me every month because I was like, I should not be entrusted with this kind of spending. By the way, I don't handle the money at Southland City Church. You all know that, right? I should clarify that now as I'm saying all this. I really don't. Um, anyway, uh, I remember telling my coworker, I was like, I think my problem with spreadsheets is they get in the way of feelings. <laughs> so that's my natural disposition toward this stuff, right? So I'm there in the season of my life, and I'm paying out a lot of extra money for grad school, and I have roommates at the house, and we're trying to make it all work. And one day, I go to the sink, and I turn the water on, and it doesn't come. And I grew up in the Midwest, so my first thought is, are the pipes frozen? But it was July. <laughs> and I realized my utilities had gotten turned off. Yeah, that was a super disempowering feeling. I know some of you have been there. It's not a good feeling, I know. Um, it was embarrassing. Um, I had roommates who paid me rent that I was supposed to use to pay the utility. How do you think they felt, right? <laughs> um, I remember that being a real low point in my own sort of experience of disempowerment around these things. And I remember um, coming out of that experience, trying to figure out, like, what, what am I going to do that's going to, like, it's one thing to try to avoid the negative, but that's actually not a great motivation for human behavior. It just doesn't do a lot for us. It's like, I need to find a different reason to get excited about my weekly date with the spreadsheet. Right? Like, I, I need to, like, find something that's going to, like, re-engineer my relationship with the money so that I can look forward to those, like, weekly check-ins where I try to check in and have more intentionality and make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I was thinking through that, and what I actually realized during that time was during that season, I had not been, um, I didn't have a regular practice of generosity in any particular direction, including to my church. And um, I promise, this is not like a, this is just me being honest about the actual experience for me. Uh, once I found a way to carve out some room in my budget to start being generous, that actually became the joyful reason that I showed up every week for that budget day with my spreadsheet. Like, it, it doesn't do a lot to me. It doesn't excite me. I don't feel enlivened or empowered to figure out how to pay the utilities or, um, you know, like, how to, like, buy my groceries. I mean, I'm glad I can do that, but I don't, like, find anything super inspiring about that. But when I realized that this whole sort of exercise and intentionality and planning and kind of stewarding my power and being intentional, like, all of that, the fact that it, then it also means that I get to send some money in directions I really believe in, that's fun. 
I actually like, can feel things inside my chest get a little bit bigger when that happens. I can feel my head get lifted up a little bit when that happens, right? Uh, here's another example right now. Here's something that's making my budget fun for me right now. Um, you guys have heard me tell stories before that as a guy with no like, traditional family, some of the most meaningful relationships in my life are with the kids who call me Uncle Jay. And these are a few of my best friends who have really invited me deeply into their family life. And most of them don't live locally, but we do like FaceTime with the kiddos at bedtime. And most recently, I'm gonna brag about this till I die, uh, Seth and Sarah named their littlest one, who's six months old, Barrett Jason. Um, little baby Bear Jay. Um, so these relationships are deeply fulfilling to me, and I care a lot about these kids. And I don't get to see them as often as I, w- as I would like. And that's really hard for me. That's kind of heartbreaking for me. Like, I feel really attached to these little ones, and I wish I was in the same town as them. But I realized a little while ago there was something I could do that would be joyful on a regular basis. I created an Uncle Jay fund in my savings. So I have a separate savings account. It actually says the Uncle Jay fund when I log into it, right? And every month I put a little bit into that. And I don't even know what that money's going to get used for. I figure it might be that the next time I want to show up for one of those kiddos, that's where I get the airfare money that I need to fly out and be with them. Or it might be that, like, I just keep putting money there, and later in life that money can do them some real good. I have no idea, but, like, I dream about maybe helping them with college or pay for their first car or showing up when they want to launch a business later in life. Right now, I put $10 a month in the Uncle Jay fund. I know, that's not going to pay for college. I get that, right? (laughs) But it's also really not about the amount right now. It's about the heart behind it and the empowerment that I feel that my love can be expressed not just in the hugs that I give them when I show up, and not just in the moments when I can be physically present with them, but also like every time I log into my spreadsheet. I've done another little mental hack. This is my last little tidbit for you in case it helps you, and then we'll wrap it up. So I just use a, a Google spreadsheet for my budget, and it's got you know, all the money that comes in and all the places that it goes and the things that I'm paying for and how much they cost and the dates that they are due, right? And I color code it. So, here, so on my spreadsheet of all that kind of money going out, right, a lot of the lines are, are neutral. They're just like white or gray, whatever the background color is, right? And that's just paying for life stuff. That's utilities and groceries and rent and stuff like that, right? I have some lines that are red, and I picked the brightest red that you can get in Google Docs. Those are debts that I'm still paying down. I'm not trying to beat myself up, but I, I don't want a, a debt on my spreadsheet to not hurt a little. I want to I wanna, I wanna feel it not just when I make the payment, but when I look at my budget and say, that's right, I'm still trying to make progress, right? I want to I wanna be more empowered, and part of being more empowered is getting out of that debt, right? And then, I have the brightest green I could find. And that bright green is for the lines that I feel like are like positive expressions of what I believe in or using my power for my love in the world. And so the Uncle Jay line is green. And like my personal savings is green, the little bit that I'm able to put away every month, that's green. And then the things I'm able to do that are generous toward causes I believe in or the church, those are green. And that's just a little reminder for me that these, these are joyful, sort of forward-leaning expressions of my values, Right? And these are just like little hacks for me, but they come back to these big, like sacred ideas about the fact that I know that I am here to bear the image of God. And the day that my water got turned off, I, didn't, I, I wasn't like any less worthy of God on that day than I am today. I didn't have any less dignity that day than I have today, although I, I felt it, but I don't think that's true. But uh, as much as it's in my power, as much as I'm in charge of my circumstances, as much as I'm able to do it, I want to I live out this sort of divine calling of, of agency and creativity and intention uh, with, how I, with how I use the things I have. When I get my hands on the raw materials of this world, which is time and energy and talent and treasure and like all these things that I get my hands on that I can manipulate and move around, I don't want to be um, just a victim of marketing schemes and bad debts. 
I want to be empowered and an agent. I want to walk proudly through the world knowing that I'm doing what I can do, which may be a little or maybe a lot, but I want to know that I'm doing what I can do to steward and channel those things because when I do, I'm a little closer to what I'm meant to be. And honestly, guys, what I know for sure is that when you're less dragged along impulsively making decisions you don't even realize you're making and more aware and awake, more moving your life toward your values, that's actually just a, a more fun life. It's a more joyful life. It's not always an easier life, but it's a better life. And it's why we need to talk about money more around here because we want to help one another, not just practically, but theologically. We want to say this is part of what it is to bear the image of God. Thus concludes the money series at Southland City Church for this year. If you're able, will you stay to your feet? I'm very excited for the next couple of weeks. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're doing kind of a mini-series. We're going to tap back into a, a sort of framing theological idea that has been with Southland City Church from the very beginning, but you might not have heard it because you weren't all here at the very beginning. We're going to tap into that framing theological idea, and then we're going to let it take us in a direction we've never gone before as a church. I'm very excited about it. That's all you get right now. That's the teaser. For the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll be very good. That being said, may you hold your head high no matter what your budget looks like. You are a child of God. And it may be that things have happened to you to take some of your power away for a moment, but may you know that who you are was never up for grabs based on the balance in your bank account. That being said, may you walk forward in your calling. And wherever you have any power, whether it's in your time or the way that you use your words, the energies that you bring, the talents that you put out into the world, or the treasure that you steward, may you do so in a way that honors the character of God. Because to honor the character of God is to honor yourself and your beloved neighbors. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.